It was a crisp, wintry morning in early 2013 when Sean Sinisi arrived at a place called Gaudencia. He was 20 years old. As is standard with drug rehabilitation facilities, he completed an intake form, a portion of which required him to recount his relationship with drugs. On the intake form, Sean said that he had been drinking and smoking pot since age 13, that around age 15 he started popping pills, opioids. At 16, he dabbled with hallucinogens like LSD and ecstasy and paired them with benzos. At 18, he started snorting cocaine but stopped and switched to crack and heroin at 19. He said the longest he'd gone without drugs since the age of 13 was two months. Sean's stay at Gaudenzia had been court-ordered, six months after his mom, Marianne, wrote her original request to a judge. He was finally being admitted into the county's drug court program. Marianne's hopes were high, but measured, because this was already Sean's second attempt at rehab. The first one had come to a dramatic conclusion just months earlier. Four months earlier, Marianne had desperately typed a letter to the judge overseeing her son Sean's drug dealing charges, asking that he be allowed to enter a program that would delay his court case while he completed rehab. And four days after she sent that letter, the judge replied, issuing an order that Sean report to a rehab facility as soon as a bed becomes available. You don't know what to do. You don't know who to trust. You just... You ask the healthcare professionals, okay, what's this place like? What, oh, that has a pretty good reputation. The facility was called Bowling Green. It is near Philadelphia, which is about three and a half hours from where the Sinisis live. Marianne watched as someone from the center came to pick Sean up. She was trusting that her son was finally going to get the help that he needed. You think, oh my gosh, this is, you know, you're just so naive thinking... He's going to get 30 days in a place, gosh, all the in and out and using the drugs and he's, you know, scraping them out of this house and that. 30 days away from this, this is it, you know? You just, you're just grasping and you're thinking that this is going to really make a difference. In part, Marianne felt so sure because she had told the psychologist who would be treating Sean her hunch, her whole family's hunch, that her son had been a victim of sexual abuse by Jerry Sandusky. He has not been able to come out with the words himself, so we're hoping a professional can help him come to terms with this. And what did the counselor say when you told them that? The gentleman I talked to was, you know, real concerned and very, well, we really need to work with this. She left it in the hands of professionals sure that they would know how to step in and fix this. But within a week, it was over. From Advanced Local and Meadowlark Media, I'm Sarah Gannam. This is the mayor of Maple Avenue. Chapter 2. He ended up talking to another staff member there. I don't even know what her title was. 
But for some reason, she decided to blurt it out to Sean that she knew he was a victim. She just said, I know why you use and what your problems are. And they're all because of Jerry Sandusky. He just flipped. It escalated real quick. He flew off the handle, the the counselor said. They had a bit of a screaming match, and Sean said he wasn't going to stay, that he had no intentions on talking to her about anything. Sean checked himself out. It's not clear where he went. Records that the Bowling Green facility kept say nothing about his discharge, why he left, or where they dropped him off. Officials there did not return multiple requests for comment. Marianne had hoped that when she gave the facility that sensitive information about Sean's history, that it would be the key to helping her son. She was devastated and furious when it ended up cutting short his first attempt at rehab, potentially making things even worse. She didn't understand how that could have happened. Now, let's be clear. We don't know exactly who blurted out this information to Sean, what their job was, or what qualifications they had. But this slip-up felt amateur. And experts say a lot of treatment centers give enormous responsibility to employees who may be rich in personal experience, but often lack the kind of clinical and professional training that's necessary to guide or support someone through recovery. A lot of treatment centers will overuse the behavioral health technicians, and they will put them in situations like that where they don't know what to do. So that's a setup for failure. That's Ben Braffman, director of the Academy for Addiction Professionals and the founder and past president and CEO of a rehab facility in Florida called Destination Hope. Experts like Braffman told me, that it's not uncommon for people who work at these facilities to have inadequate training to deal with hypersensitive topics. They're not trained to discuss any of that on any level. But unfortunately, some behavioral health technicians have been in the field a long time. They are treated like a counselor or a therapist, or they think that they know because they went through treatment or they're in recovery. And so they're going to share their hope, strength, and experience with that individual, all in the name of, you know, I'm trying to get this person better, and this is what worked for me, but not really realizing that it's not cookie cutter like that, and they're really messing with somebody. We debated here whether you should have to have a high school education in order to treat addiction. And that's Dr. William Miller. He's a professor emeritus of psychology and psychiatry at the University of New Mexico, where his research has focused on substance abuse disorder and treatment outcomes. What other life-threatening illness would you ever have that debate about, you know, whether your provider should have graduated from high school? I came to New Mexico in the 70s, and the only requirement then to be an addiction counselor was that you be in recovery yourself. And that was, the, that was the only requirement. It's getting better over time. Uh, there are more requirements of educational degrees and background, but still pretty loose. And in a program like that, they can hire people without particular kinds of credentials or background. 
In Pennsylvania, technicians in recovery organizations are called certified recovery specialists, and they have to have a high school education, 54 hours of addiction-specific education, a minimum of 18 months in personal recovery themselves, and a passing grade on an exam, along with a signed ethical code of conduct. But let's put that into perspective. 54 hours of education. One work week is 40 hours. Most yoga instructor certifications require 200 hours of training. And Pennsylvania is not alone. 19 other states have similar requirements. This is sort of the bottom of the barrel status-wise. That The requirements have been very low. The pay has been very low. We've had so little respect, both for people who are suffering from addiction and those who treat it. How little respect? I found an advertisement in Pennsylvania, and I just want to read it to you. Sure. Here's an example I shared with Ben Braffman. It's it's for one of these technician jobs, and it says the job responsibilities include listening to clients concerning all areas of treatment, maintain safe, orderly, and therapeutic physical environment for clients, including crisis intervention, coordinating activities for lectures, recreation, and meetings, following objectives of the treatment plans, evaluating behavior and emotional needs of clients, assisting with interventions, transport clients, ability to handle crisis situations, experience facilitating group preferred but not required. Requirements for this job must have a high school diploma or GED and a valid driver's license, and it pays $9 an hour. And I just thought, like, wow. Wow. What you just rattled off, I'm not sure that a doctor could do. You know, I'm I'm not sure that that a qualified nurse can do. Asking a 22-year-old kid who maybe has his GED, maybe not, to de-escalate a bipolar psychotic who just got off of a crack run. Are you crazy? So it makes no sense to me. It's just a setup for failure, and, and really it creates this sort of factory, you know, that you just, you just spit out these patients, and they go to five or six rehabs, they get the same experience, and nothing ever changes. After walking out of Bowling Green, Sean moved back home. That seven days obviously was nothing, and it really just ended up making him angry. He didn't even have enough time to detox, I'm sure. He had always been really good at hiding when he was high, but Marianne knew that he was not clean because he had been failing drug tests. He had charges, but he hadn't gone to court. So when he would go out to probation every single week, even if he wasn't living with me, I'd go pick him up and take him out for his drug test. And he'd fail them and walk out the door and come back to me. (laughs) And, you know, I'd ask probation, well, I I don't get it. He's using, he's clearly using and you're testing him. But he was in a loophole that he hadn't gone to court yet. So they couldn't really do anything about it, they said, until he went to court. And he actually... He probably tested positive for 90% of the test he was getting at that point. And he knew, you know, the court date was coming, but it didn't matter. He was going to keep using as much as he could use before he went to court. What happened at Bowling Green shook Marianne's faith in these facilities and the folks who run them. And worse, it fractured the hope that she had built up that rehab could be the solution for her son. But her disappointment only strengthened her resolve to make sure that her son found a path to recovery. She was his mother. She would not and could not give up on him. 
In Marianne's mind, this dysfunctional system would not seal Sean's fate, but it did remain an obstacle that both Marianne and Sean would have to learn to navigate, each from their own vantage point. Sean as a victim, an addict, and Marianne as a devoted parent. Sometimes that meant that they worked together, and sometimes she took matters into her own hands. This was one of those times. Marianne remembers standing in Target one day during the time when Sean was failing drug tests and just deciding, spur of the moment, to call the prosecutor in Sean's case and tell him that her son was using. And he said, you know, you're really putting me in this awkward position. You have an attorney and you're paying your attorney. I said, but my attorney isn't keeping him alive. I'm his mother, so I'm acting as his mother. It worked. Days later, on December 14th, 2012, Sean was hauled off to jail. One week later, he appeared before the judge, who gave him some sympathy and another chance at rehab. This time, one that was picked by the court, and also paid for by the court. This is how Sean ended up at the facility called Gaudenzia. Unlike Bowling Green, which he was sent to as more of an informal intervention by a judge willing to put his case on hold, Gaudenzia was court-ordered and court-funded. Sean was formally ordered into the county's drug court program, which combines traditional incarceration with rehab services. The judge ruled that Sean would spend the remainder of the year in a jail cell, getting sober, and then head to Gaudenzia, where he would do 90 days of inpatient treatment. Despite what had happened the first time, Marianne was still hopeful that 90 days at Gaudenzia would help. This was three times as long as he was supposed to be at Bowling Green, three times the treatment. In her mind, it had to add up to Sean getting the attention that he deserved. Did you tell them, I mean, obviously you had a pretty bad experience informing the first one, Bowling Green, of the trauma that you thought that Sean had and what was the underlying cause. Did you tell Gaudenzia the same thing? Did you give them that same warning? Yeah, I did. Did you hesitate about that because of what had happened? No. No? No, I thought this one's court-ordered. If he walks out, then he's probably going to go to jail. Right. So now's my chance to get this out there and hoping that somebody was qualified. In the records, Sean writes about his life so far and how he ended up here. I have so many fucked up things happen to me in my life at such a young age. And I don't know how to deal with it. He wrote about the death of his grandparents, about a neighbor who died who was like a second father to him, and about friends who had died recently of drug overdoses, including one that he blamed himself for. And I haven't dealt with that right. Because if it wasn't for me, he would have never got started doing the drugs he was doing. He wrote about how he's disappointed his family. I've hurt my family way too much and lost their trust in me. And not only have I lost trust from my family and my friends, I lost a lot of jobs from my addiction, and I've lost a lot of my valuable items just to get high. And it's not worth it anymore. On the form, Sean asks for one-on-one therapy and says he's coming into this feeling really good about recovery. But when the family came to visit for Sean's birthday in February, Marianne was struck by how little one-on-one counseling Sean was actually getting. I just 
was kind of blown away with how little treatment they really got individualized. When I asked about him getting one-on-one counseling in there, the counselor said to me, well, yeah, but it's like an hour a week. And I said, okay. He says, but I have to clarify, we are short-staffed. Oh my gosh. It's not going to be an hour at one time. He might get 10 minutes one day, maybe 15 minutes another day. I'm thinking, yeah, okay, this isn't going to work either. The official records at Gaudenzia say that Sean got 13 individual therapy sessions during his 90-day stay. Sometimes the sessions were one week apart, sometimes they were up to 13 days apart. The log provided by Gaudenzia says those sessions were one hour each, but the notes written by Sean paint a different picture. For example, in one note, Sean wrote, I have all this self-pain built up, but no one to talk to. I'm supposed to be in treatment, but I can't even get my counselor to take 10 or 15 minutes out of his day to talk about my issues. I'm not getting anything out of the program. At one point during his stay, his parents were invited into one of these individual sessions for family therapy. I think it was February, because it might have been his birthday around that time. We were sitting and watching TV, and all of a sudden, he's nodding off. And I'm thinking, what in the heck? I mean, they don't do much. How could he be that tired? And we questioned him on him a couple times, and he didn't say. He just said, I'm just tired, that's all. You know, it's hard to sleep in these beds. They're terrible. Do you think he was using, and that's why he was nodding off? Oh, it's exactly what happened. But it wasn't the kind of using that would have gotten him kicked out. Marianne found out what was happening when she followed up with a phone call to the staff nurse. I need to know what's going on. What is going on with him that he's nodding off like that? And she said, well, the PA was in to see him. PA is short for physician's assistant. And she doesn't work for us. But she was in to see him and and he told her he has back pain. So she prescribed him Neurotin, which is the gabapentin or Neurotin, they call it. So... I was, like, just blown away. Neurontin is the brand name for gabapentin, so they are often used interchangeably. It's an anti-epileptic medication used to treat seizures and also nerve pain. It's considered a less addictive alternative to opioids. However, it's still addictive and can be abused. It also doesn't show up in standard drug tests. And here was the nurse telling Marianne that the PA had just prescribed this narcotic for her son, who was currently in treatment for his addiction to opioids and painkillers. She said, we don't even like it. We're we're not happy about it at all. And I said, well, he's in your facility. Why can't you do something about it? Well, because she's a PA and he said he had, I said, oh my God, I said, this is insane. So I asked her for the phone number of this PA. I said, I want to know where she works at. I want, to, I want to talk to her. So she gave me her information, and I called the woman. And I said, you know what? I, I have to ask you. You saw my son in Godenzia. You do realize what facility this is for. You gave him something for chronic back pain, but yet you didn't do an X-ray. You didn't do an MRI. Hell, you didn't even send him to a chiropractor. You just gave him neuron. And she said, well, he said he has back pain. Again, I repeated to her, do you know what Godenzia is and why they're there? My advice to you is 
get him off, or he doesn't have a home plan because he can't come back here. Marianne complained to the probation office and also to the nonprofit that contracted with the state to provide the funding for Sean to be in the facility. But she says she was told to back off. I was too controlling and needed to let Sean do the work. The impact of this prescription for gabapentin at Gaudenzio was huge. It can't be understated. It altered almost every rehabilitation experience that Sean would have. It taught Sean that he could easily get permission to get high inside a facility, never failing a drug test, with a simple complaint of back pain. It was classic drug-seeking behavior. No one from Gaudenzia answered my questions or provided any comment for this podcast, so we don't know why gabapentin was so quickly prescribed for Sean. But going off the documents we do have, here's what we know. Gaudenzia checked a box, telling the courts that Sean completed the program successfully. Their records say that he did well there. He was even praised for testing negative when his roommate was caught with drugs. But he got very little individual counseling, and he walked away with a roadmap for gaming the system. Neurontin, or gabapentin, continued to show up in Sean's records for the next six years, Almost every facility fell for his back pain complaint without ever running a single diagnostic test to see if there was, in fact, anything wrong with his back. He'd say, Mom, everybody does it. At first, he would deny it, but it wasn't until after he was finished with that program that he said, Mom, I did it. Everybody does it because it's the only way to get through. How do you think you can live in this kind of atmosphere where everybody around you is getting high? In the fall of 2020, I went to Pittsburgh to meet with some of the people who Sean spent time with during this period of his life. And the first person I met was a man named Steve Pearlstein. Steve was in drug court with Sean. They had briefly spent time in prison together before they both ended up at the same halfway house. Steve and I met at a diner, and the first thing that we talked about was how easy it was to get in a rotten people like Sean, who was on, like, the um, Laurent and stuff, they continued to get them, and it was an easy way to get high. Do they get them, from, like, officially, or do they get them unofficially? People get them officially from the doctor. A lot of people did, but maybe 400 milligrams or 600 and or 800. And then these people that were abusing them would eat, like, 3,200 milligrams at a time. You know, like, way over what you should because it would make you feel like you're an opiate high. And you can pass a drug test. But if you just told the doctor you had back pain, like, was it really that easy to get it? Yeah. Nowadays, it's not, but it was around that time. Steve graduated from drug court and went on to work inside a rehab facility. And so he watched the evolution of Neurotin, how doctors eventually got wise to the abuse. But he says... Back when he was at the halfway house with Sean. Like if I have back pain and I tell the doctor, hey, I need Neurontin because I can't take opiates, how does he know that I'm going to take it like I'm supposed to go and abuse it? How many people, though, coincidentally could really have back pain? That's it. I mean, like all in the same facility. I agree. And there was like 75% of the people there were on. You know, That's so, a huge number. I mean, it, it, it kind of kept like that drug mentality alive because if you're abusing them, you need to still get them. So then like... You would have all these people, Sean included, going down to, like, Market Square in Pittsburgh, like, big meeting place for all the people from the halfway houses in the area and stuff, and then they can get them all in or whatever else they want right there. You know what I mean? Need some more coffee? Uh, yeah, sure, thanks. 
So he was never at a facility, as far as you know, where he wasn't given a prescription. It seemed like everywhere you went, he had that one. It was legit <laughs> given to him. And I don't understand that now. We didn't want him on it. We just kept saying the same thing. It's just trading one drug for another. I wanted to talk to some experts about this. So I reached out to Dr. Marv Seppala. He's the chief medical officer at the Hazelton Betty Ford Foundation and a national expert on addiction treatment. Gabapentin in addiction settings is commonly used for pain because it's not considered and I'll put it in quotes, as addictive, unquote, uh, as the opioids. And yet it is misused. That's That's been well documented. In our circles, it's got this sort of halo of safety that, that isn't warranted. If someone is taking medication that has the potential for euphoria, for intoxication, which gabapentin does in, in high doses, and is used commonly that way, actually, it may and probably does continue to trigger the underlying neurobiological aspects of addiction in the brain. And and as a result, leave the person unable to fully get into recovery and address their life in a positive manner. Because when we think about addiction from a neurobiologic perspective, there's kind of a final common pathway in regard to the brain's response to intoxicants. Uh, they all have different effects on us, you know, the different classes. So cocaine doesn't affect us like opioids, doesn't affect us like alcohol. There's some similarities that there's different receptors involved for the different classes of intoxicants and that sort of thing for intoxication itself. But for addiction, there's this final common pathway associated with specific parts of the brain and primarily the neurotransmitter dopamine all of them trigger excess release of dopamine. And as a result, if someone is provided a medication or takes a medication, it continues that assault on the part of the brain associated with addiction, primarily the reward center. I think of the gabapentin in a similar manner, that if you're continuing to trigger that underlying neurobiological aspect of this disease, then there isn't true recovery and it can't be had. It's just still, you know, smoldering along. When Sean left Gaudenzia in April of 2013, there's no way of knowing if he was actually sober. But I am going to assume that he was not, since the next step of drug court is a halfway house. And on his intake form, it states that he was currently taking Neurontin for mild back pain. The halfway house was called Pine Ridge Manor, and it's here, on these intake forms, that Sean himself made an important admission about his addiction. The intake form asks, have you ever experienced severe emotional trauma? And Sean says yes, citing the recent death of four friends from drug or alcohol abuse, and also from molestation. But that box might as well have not existed because his records show no counseling specific to his trauma. There was, however, acknowledgement of his back pain. In fact, one of the first sessions with his psychiatrist notes, quote, he did agree to go ahead with the increase of Neurontin, 300 milligrams, three times daily for anxiety, as well as pain issues. 
Sean didn't last long at Pine Ridge Manor, just about two months. He got kicked out for violating something they called a motivational contract. Marianne says he snuck in a cell phone. Pyramid Healthcare did not answer questions about Marianne's allegations, but his paperwork says he had no positive drug tests. The counselor who discharged him wrote that his prognosis was poor, with little explanation for why. As a result, the judge sentenced Sean to sit in jail for the remainder of the time that he otherwise would have been at the halfway house, which was 54 days. She just, I guess, assumed, here's a little wake-up call, don't break rules, or here's where you end up. When Sean was released from jail, he went back into the drug court program, where he was required to do check-ins with probation, random drug testing, and to get a job, which he did as a pizza delivery driver. He was happier that I'd seen him in a long time. I I know he was staying clean. And that is about the time where he met a girl and things were going okay for a while. But he became quickly obsessed with her. Marianne told me that as a younger teenager, Sean seemed to have a delayed interest in girls. But then as a young man, she watched him jump fast and hard into relationships, often prioritizing that over everything else in his life. Honestly, the girl, uh, having a girlfriend, I think, took precedence over everything. He wanted that female companionship and acceptance and feel like he could have a normal life, yes. He was tired of being under a microscope, and he just wanted to have a normal life. This made a lot of sense to me, but then I brought it up to Jen Storm. She's the former Pennsylvania victim witness advocate and also an author and documentarian of her own story, which is called Blackout Girl. It's her struggle with addiction after she was raped at 12. And I began to understand the situation differently after I talked to her. His family told me that he was constantly rushing back to normal. He would get a little taste of recovery. He would get out of the facility, he'd be clean, he'd be on a good path, and he would immediately seek out a girlfriend. Like that was his first priority, not getting a job, not staying sober so much, you know, but like number one priority was having a girlfriend. And to a lot of people that looked like he just really so badly wanted to be normal. And that was the picture of normal. Now that was a substance he was using. We don't talk about that enough, right? But it's not uncommon for us to use people and for us to use sex and for other survivors to use people and for other survivors to use sex. It's an escape. And it kind of fills all of those same neuro pathways that drugs do, right? It it makes you happy. It feels good. Um, being liked and getting someone's attention can be just as intoxicating as a drink or a drug. And so while that might look like normalcy to an outside person, because they're not understanding what's going on in that person's brain, it's drug-seeking behavior. It's escapism at its core. And it does create this false sense of normalcy when really underneath you're just replacing drugs with a person. And so we really do need to do better at educating around that. It's not so much the band-aids that traditional recovery put on people, which is like abstinence, go to a, a meeting, do this, do that. You also have to couple that with getting down into the reasons you're using, the reasons you're running. And it's biological, it's chemical, it's emotional, and it starts with that core traumatic experience. And until you address that, people are going to continue to look outside of themselves to fill inside up. Sean, by Marianne's description, was obsessed with his girlfriend. He just wanted her all the time. 
he'd want to take her to work. He'd want to pick her book after work. You know, he wanted to be with her and he just was obsessed. And so I think that the whole, you know, I want to be with her. I'm not going to do what I need to do for drug court. It's okay, fine. I'm not doing the meetings. I'm just going to say I went. I mean, he would tell me. They're not going to know. You know, they, they can't know if I go. They're, there's privacy. You're not allowed to say whether somebody showed up. So he would just take his papers and have them signed or fudge it himself. If there had been any progress in Sean's recovery, it was slipping away. She was a girl that was younger than him, but yet she drank. And they loved to go four-wheeling. She bought a four-wheeler. So that whole crowd, when they'd go anywhere, you know, you, know, you knew that they were up in the woods or whatever, and they were they were drinking and stuff. He started pushing the envelope of not coming home or not doing, you know, he thought he could do whatever he wanted, and he was lying to probation. So that started to be a problem with us here because we weren't going to cover for that. So I actually called his probation officer and said, look, he's not doing any of the stuff he's supposed to be doing, and it's starting to be a problem here. So he had a session coming up at drug court, and they decided at that point they were going to give him a little bit of like a two-week wake-up call. So she put him in jail for two weeks. And while Sean sat in jail, prosecutors were firming up a new case. Two years prior, Sean had made two drug sales to an old roommate. One time it was 30 bucks worth of pills, another time it was synthetic drugs called bath salts. Both times, it was near a school. And unbeknownst to Sean, the guy who he was selling to had started working with police as a confidential informant. Sean had no idea the police were investigating him. Neither did Marianne. I lost it. I was hysterical. I thought this can't be happening again. You can't have new charges while you're in drug court. That's a big no-no. He was kicked out of the program and now facing a lot of time. In Pennsylvania, dealing drugs close to a school enhances the punishment, and it carries a mandatory sentence of two to four years in state prison. Two to four years on each charge. Sean sat in county jail for six months while his case went through the system, and his attorney was able to broker a pretty decent deal. The judge agreed to combine all four of his cases, the two controlled buys from 2012, which resulted in failed drug court, and the two from 2013. They were all lumped together into one sentence of intermediate state punishment. When I talked to the one attorney that we had worked with in the past, who I thought was, you know, very trustworthy, and he told me, Marianne, don't waste your money. Let him get a public defender and see what happens. And when they decided to offer him, he, the public defender got this offered for the SIP program. He even couldn't believe they gave it to him. The Intermediate State Punishment Program in Pennsylvania is also known as SIP, or SIP, and it's kind of like the state's version of a drug court. It reduces a state sentence and combines it with a treatment program. But first, Sean had to spend nine months in a state prison cell. When he was paroled in April 2015, he was 23 years old. It's not clear if he continued to get a prescription for back pain when he was behind bars, because, well, the state says the records are too old to access. But we'll presume that when he leaves prison, he is sober, and probably has been for the longest period of time since the age of 13. 
For the next step of SIP, Sean was immediately sent to a state-run rehab center called Penn Pavilion. Did he do well at Penn Pavilion? He did. He actually liked it there. He, um, of course, was ecstatic to get out of a a state prison and get out of Philadelphia and be up in the Pittsburgh area. He seemed more like his old self. In fact, he said he had connected with, like, janitorial staff there and was helping them with things that they did because that's stuff that interests him. So was this like a step-down program? He's in this facility full-time for two months. Then he goes to Riverside, which is a halfway house. And that's also mandated by the court, right? Yes. Yep. And how did he do at Riverside? That, unfortunately, was not good. Riverside was a halfway house that has since been closed by the state. But when it existed, it was attached to a correctional facility. When you walked in, you went right to get to the prison and left to enter the halfway house. Only a glass partition separated them. I drove over to the Riverside halfway house in Pittsburgh. It's wedged between the Ohio River and the Norfolk Southern Railroad tracks in an industrial park about 10 miles from the city center. Getting there without a car is not easy, but Sean walked to and from every single day looking for work. Riverside also happens to be where Sean became friends with Steve Perlstein. We became friends because he he started coming there, and uh, we had a lot of free time there. Really, like, we were all just so glad to be out of jail, and, like, every chance we got, it was, like, a group of us that would all just hang out at the point or, like, downtown and, like, explore the city, Mm -hmm. because, like, I never really explored the city being clean. The way Steve described the halfway house to me, it reminded me of stories you hear about boarding school or a fraternity where the older members give younger ones tips on survival. And one of the cheats that was passed down at Riverside was about keeping a cell phone. It's hard to imagine how anyone would get a job these days without a smartphone. But inside the halfway house, residents like Sean were not allowed to have one. Sean's reliance on his phone was the reason he had been kicked out of Pine Ridge Manor a year earlier. But here at Riverside, the trick that Sean was taught by other guys like Steve was to get a phone and bury it somewhere outside. The guy that left that he knew from this area that was there gave him this little locked box that was waterproof, airtight, everything that he bought so he could hide his phone outside of that facility. So when he left, he could maneuver around the city and have a, a normal phone. What, what was the big deal about? I mean, how do you put a person at a disadvantage in a city that they'd never been in and they wouldn't know what when the buses are coming or anything? So he, he'd hide it. And, you know, I knew he was doing that. Right, because so much of, like, daily life centers now around our cell phones that you would think that it would be necessary for them to become productive members of society again. Right, filling out job applications. Right, like all of the things that you need. All of it. It used to creep me out that I'm sitting there in the car waiting to take him back or whatever if we were visiting, and he'd have to go in this thing of bushes to try to hide this phone. Almost everyone did it in the same place. The Norfolk Southern Railroad tracks across the street are elevated. To get to them, you walk about a third of a mile under a bridge and then through the gravel parking lot of a divey little red brick diner, up a small hill with overgrown brush and lots of trash. The tracks are up on black metal risers formed at angles, leaving plenty of hiding places. 
Steve Pearlstein says that Riverside residents would hide all kinds of things back there near the train tracks, even cars. Yeah, behind the diner. Yeah. Is that where everybody was hiding it? For the majority. I mean, that's where some of us parked our cars and, you know, <laughs> we're not allowed to have there, but we, but as far as... Is that like, why it says no parking? Yeah. Because everybody was Everyone, parking there? Yeah. Interesting. To this day, I, I try to do a little better with it now, but I can't stand here in the train. It just takes me back to watching him walk up to those tracks hide that damn phone, and what an abnormal life he had to live because he had an addiction. So little about Sean's life had been normal over the last five years. His stints in and out of prison meant that he missed the last two Christmases with his family. And so as Christmas 2015 rolled around, the Sinisis were ecstatic that Sean was allowed to come home. Finally, they could all be together and celebrate like a normal family. In fact, it was extra special because Marianne had reconnected with her first child, the daughter that she had given up for adoption when she was 16. That baby was now an adult with a husband and kids of her own, and they were coming up from West Virginia for a day to visit. You know how it is at the holidays, juggling everyone's schedules. But Marianne was getting one day with all three kids and her grandkids together. But then Riverside called to tell Sean that he had been selected for a random drug test and he needed to come back earlier than expected. And if he wasn't there by 9 p.m., it would be considered a failed test by default. So instead of spending the day with her daughter and grandkids, Marianne drove Sean the two hours to get to the facility in time to take the test. I mean, that broke my heart because I didn't want to miss my daughter her husband, and my grandchildren. So I had to leave Why they celebrated. I just got to say hugs, love you, because I only had the one day with him. I mean, I was devastated by it, but I just, the principle was he didn't have a, a positive and I wasn't going to let him take one. You didn't want him to fail by default. You wanted him to, to take it legitimately. Yes. So you drove him to Pittsburgh instead of spending Christmas with your daughter and her kids. Yep. Yeah. On the way down, this song began to play on the radio. Hold on, hold on to me, I'm and I said to him, this song reminds me, makes me think of you and what goes on in your head. He didn't say anything. He just listened. And what happened when you got there? Did he pass the drug test? He passed. And so we drove back up over the mountain and back home again. But he was pretty upset. Even when we came back, he was upset. And he missed the whole night. He missed seeing his sister, his nieces and nephew, and his brother-in-law. It was a family time, and he missed out. So it was, it was rough. But the next day, then we put him on the train, and he went back. And he went back in a bad, in a bad place. Oh, yeah. It was just, you know, another tainted holiday. Less than a week later, on New Year's Eve, Sean relapsed. He used heroin and he got caught. And when the family went to visit again in early February for Sean's birthday... I knew he didn't seem right to me. I could just tell. Because you learn the behaviors and you learn the way he talks. And she was right. He had another positive test days later. His counselor and I had, you know some deep conversations. And he said, the problem is, is that he's unleashed the beast in this town. And that's not great. 
What does that mean? Because he unleashed the monster, he said, of heroin. And now he knows where to get it and how to access it as quickly as he as he needs it or wants it. I ended up talking not to his counselor, but I talked to the director of the facility. And I said, look, what are you guys doing over there? Why can't you put him back in treatment? Obviously, he needs it. And he just said, no, that's that's not how we do this. This is the HOPE SIP program. So they're allowed four strikes before they got booted off of this program and revoked. So SIP HOPE, I say SIP HOPE, so we have all these different prisons that offer the SIP program, okay? Steve Perlstein explained to me. So SIP HOPE was you get more than one chance. Okay, so like if you were to go to someplace that was just a regular SIP program and you're in the, in the halfway house, you mess up, you're going back to jail, you're going back in front of your judge. Oh yeah, but he got like multiple. So SIP Hope, which was ours and I think one of the ones that was like out by Philly, um, were the only two that did it in the whole state. And this is part of why I think like a lot of people don't didn't get clean from there and like maybe why Sean didn't stop because we knew first offense, failed urine or breathalyzer. 24 hours 24 to 48 okay okay second time three to five days third time seven to ten days fourth time you go back to jail for i think like six months or something like it uh and when you get resentenced you get five times yeah you see you get five strikes who needs five strikes when you're trying to do good that's just telling me like okay steve you got to be here for 11 months 11 months you have 11 months you could screw up five times times that's spread it out. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, don't do it all at once because then you'll run out. I used three of them. But the hope, I think, was where the mistake was made. Interesting. And they got rid of that. Yeah. There is no SIP hope anymore. <laughs> the HOPE stands for Hawaii Opportunity Probation Experiment, the program that it was modeled after. The entire program of intermediate punishment is now being phased out in Pennsylvania and replaced with a different program. But back in 2015, when Sean was in it, SIP Hope did in fact give participants five chances to fail a drug test before they were kicked out. 95% of everybody, we abused it. Marianne was furious. Here was yet another failed attempt at rehabilitation, stemming from what seemed to be blatant neglect of the actual needs of her son. Everywhere she turned, there seemed to be these loopholes, whether it was endless access to opioid substitutes or these unbalanced penalties, like exacting harsh punishment for seemingly mundane infractions like cell phones, but then loosely punishing more serious offenses like drug use. No one was asking themselves, what did Sean actually need? Marianne drove back down to Pittsburgh to meet with the director and confront him about this policy and how it was affecting Sean's recovery. And my words to him were, let me guess, you hope he dies? before then, so that's one less inmate that you have. Because there's not a chance in hell he's gonna be able to do this by himself. You know it, and I know it. He needs help. But instead of help, Marianne recalls the director laying all the blame on Sean, as if his own personal failures were the only factor in his relapse. 
She recalls the conversation escalating to the director telling her son, I would like to jump across this desk and just punch you in the face. I was like thinking, what did he just say? Sean got up and left the meeting. And Marianne was left feeling like, despite the promises of drug court, the system was set up to treat him more like a criminal and less like a patient. So do you think if he had been treated with more compassion, he might have had better results? Absolutely. I think if compassion was part of treatment, how different that could be. I mean, I don't know any other disease that's treated in this way. There's always compassion. And it doesn't matter, you know, if you smoked a pack a day, five packs a day, and you get lung cancer, you're treated with some compassion, love, and understanding But not this. This disease is not treated that way. They just lump you all in one lump thing and say that you chose this. You chose to be an addict. You chose to use these drugs. So you deserve the punishment that you're getting and the treatment you're getting in the world. I asked Jen Storm about the idea of drug courts, state intermediate punishment, and the resources that they provide. And so you're walking into something that's being delivered by the same person that's going to sign the paper at the end of the day to say you're complying with your parole conditions. So you're not dealing with a truly empathetic, compassionate, trauma-informed healing person or program. And that's the first problem. Basically, Sean is reliant on the programs he's placed in, not the programs that might be the best match for someone with underlying trauma of sexual abuse. To stick to Marianne's cancer analogy, a doctor wouldn't send a lung cancer patient to a hospital that specializes in bone cancer. Well, when you see court-mandated programmatic attendance in recovery, first of all, it's very limited because your access is very limited in the sense that you can only go to things that are free. So they can't afford real quality trauma counseling or trauma supportive environments. So they have to rely on the system. And the system is giving a very bare bones approach to recovery. It's going to be go out and find your traditional 12-step meetings because they're free and go attend those. So it becomes this band-aid. It's like this compliance band-aid that we say, you need to do to X to get to Y, but we're not going to really, between X and Y, we're not going to really dive into your healing. We don't really care enough about what happened to you. We just want to know that you complied with this so we can check a box and get you off our caseload. And then when you come back around, which inevitably you will, because it's a cycle that this system has thus created, then we're just going to do the same. We're going to keep you locked up in this cycle that is just insanity. Marianne wrote a letter to the state complaining about what happened at Riverside and the comment the director made about wanting to punch Sean in the face. As a result, the facility allowed Sean to transfer out of Riverside to a halfway house closer to home, in a more suburban setting and outside of Pittsburgh. Marianne felt that maybe some of the stressors on Sean would be eased. But he didn't last very long. Everything was already out of control. There was no stability from the day that he used on December 31st of 2015. There had been zero stability. You'd catch glimpses of it. But I was smart enough to know that the demon was always just there waiting because there was still no counseling. As much as he asked for one-on-one, never got it. When the director of the new halfway house realized this, he tried to get Sean back into a 30-day inpatient program. He was much kinder. But unfortunately, when he looked into the time frame... Sean didn't have enough time left in the program. 
for some reason, it always ended up, I seemed like I was in Walmart when I got bad news. <laughs> I'm in Walmart in tears thinking, how could this be happening again? Because Sean only had 28 days left in his court-ordered program and the treatment facility plan was 30 days, he didn't qualify. The only choice Sean had left was to go back to prison. Having failed SIP, he was brought back before the judge and sentenced to 11 and a half months in county jail. When Sean emerged from Blair County Prison in May of 2017, he went straight into yet another court-ordered rehab. Initially, things looked promising. He was assigned a male counselor, a man who was also a victim of child sex abuse. And they started to connect. Sean was, for the first time, opening up. But this treatment center continued to prescribe gabapentin. The paperwork from this particular facility really stood out to me. In fact, I nearly missed this in the handwritten notes from the nurse's station, but when I did see it, my mouth dropped. The nurse notes that Sean's prescription must be crushed and put in a cup of water, and Sean must drink a second cup of water after taking it. I immediately recognized those as the instructions that are given to people who might not swallow pills, someone at risk for keeping it under their tongue. It screams to me that they knew that Neurontin or Gabapentin was often abused, that people were getting this prescription and then selling it or stockpiling it to get high. And it shows that they suspected Sean to be a high risk for this. I asked Dr. Sapala just to be sure. I would say so. I can't imagine any other reason for doing so. You just want to be sure that the uh, person isn't cheeking it or kind of putting it under their tongues and taking it out after they leave the nurse's office so that they can stockpile it or sell it. Three weeks into Sean's stay at the facility, he failed a drug screening. Sean's paperwork also notes that he was calling people, trying to find someone to come pick him up. And so someone did come pick him up, his parole officer. Meanwhile, Marianne and Mike were conceiving a new plan to get Sean a different kind of help. At this point, he'd spent five years on the merry-go-round, and that did not seem to be working. I thought, you know what? I'm desperate here. I've got to find somebody that has some knowledge of maybe some better counseling or someone that can help him that's been trained in this. Marianne found an attorney who represented other Sandusky victims, some who were also coping with addiction. The lawyer's name was Andy Shubin. Meanwhile, Sean was back in jail for violating parole when Marianne went to visit him and ask him if he would meet with an attorney and talk about what happened. If you've ever been to a jail visitor room, you know that it is very, very difficult to have any kind of privacy there. But she managed to get him to a somewhat quiet place and whisper. And I said, I don't want you to talk, I just want you to listen. And he did listen. But we kind of huddled over in one corner and we talked. And I said, you don't have to say anything. Now, there's a lot. He didn't look at us very much. And there was times that you could just see tears. I said, the only thing I want you to answer is if he would come speak to you and arrange for it. And he said he would do it. And that's when I said, I just, I'd like to know why. Why would you have never told me? And like I said, he did. I could see him tearing up and he kept looking away. And then when he looked at me, he did say, I don't know, I guess a part of me blamed you because you're my mom and you're supposed to protect me. That was hard. 
kind of right. But how could anybody protect somebody from someone like that? That was so good at what he did. So we didn't talk about it. I just said, we'll stop because I know what you have to live through in here. When you're out, we'll figure this out and we'll talk about it then when you're ready. And then we just talked about other things. The majority of these rehab facilities were managed and run by individuals who were in recovery, who followed an abstinence-based model. There was this feeling that if I got through it without medication, then you should too, and that's the only way. Michael and I buy a suitcase and we have it all packed for Arizona weather. We're ready. It's like you're thinking this is your big break, that you have been waiting all these years to finally get something. He talked about it one day, a group, and that was the first time that, that he'd even brought that up to anybody. When they told us he was on the two medications, one for anxiety, one for depression, you know, we both kind of looked at each other like, really? In fact, with people with opiate addiction, one of the best tools that we have is opiates. That's like the tip, 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 tip of the iceberg. It takes so long to regulate and stabilize an individual, especially when you have medication involved. Well, that's like letting a kid loose in a candy store, isn't it now? What did you expect? It's right there. It's everywhere, mom. It's in the place. I've only detoxed for five days. What did you think I'm gonna do? The Mayor of Maple Avenue is written and produced by me, Sarah Gannam, in partnership with Penn Live and Meadowlark Media. Additional writing was done by Carl Scott at Meadowlark Media. We could not have done this project without funding from the Fund for Investigative Journalism and the Pulitzer Center. Our associate producers are Tori Whitten, Sarah Ruberg, and Ethan Schreier. Additional reporting was done by Charlie Thompson, Aaron Kasinitz, and Andrea Keckley. The executive producers are Kate Barron, Burke Noel, and Teresa Bonner for PenLive, and Carl Scott for Meadowlark Media. The Mayor of Maple Avenue was edited by James Sullivan and Gabriel Rojas at WUFT in Gainesville, Florida, by Jake Gloth at Cedar Production, Martin Boutros at Penn Studios, and Stephen Smith at Meadowlark Media. Sound design was done by Jesse Pearlstein, Alexander Ritchie, Martin Boutros, and Ryan Ross-Smith. Our mixing and mastering engineer was Robin Wise. Our theme music and much of the score was composed by Pete Redman, with additional music by Alexander Ritchie, Jesse Pearlstein, and Ryan Ross-Smith. Our team also includes production assistants Megan Lavie-Heaton, Joe Hermit, Sarah Tantawi, photographer Sean Simmers, and consultants John Hammontree and Neville Elder. Our legal counsel is Richard Bernstein. The podcast cover art was designed by Andy Ross. All of the voiceovers you hear in this series are read directly from original documents, such as medical records, text messages, newspaper clips, and other documents made available to us by the Sinisi family and their attorneys at the law firm of Spencer Custer. The part of Sean Sinisi is voiced by James Sullivan. 
To see extras like slideshows, interactive spaces, and written transcripts, visit our website at www.themayorofmapleavenue.com. Thank you.